welcome to Financial Footsteps, Candid Conversations with Financial Leaders, the podcast that takes you deep into the minds of the masters behind the numbers. Join host Chad Dean as he connects with financial leaders as they share their journeys so that we can gain valuable insight from their failures and triumphs. Get ready for candid conversations, behind the scenes anecdotes, and practical wisdom that will transform the way you think about your career in finance. Put down the balance sheet and listen in. Hello and welcome to Financial Footsteps. My name is Chad Dean, your host, and I am a recruiter now for 27 years. I'm the owner of Integrated Management Resources. We are an accounting and finance focused recruiting firm based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Financial Footsteps, we interview financial leaders and learn about their careers, creating a repository for students and people younger in their careers that want to follow in the footsteps of these leaders. And today, I'm very honored to have our guest, Ingmar Berg. Welcome, Ingmar. Thank you, Chad. Great to be here. I appreciate it. So let's start off, uh, let's tell the audience a little bit about yourself where you grew up, and tell us about your Texas accent and uh, a little <laughs> bit about your family and your hobbies. Yeah, I don't know about a Texas accent, but I am new to the Valley or relatively new. Came here last year uh, from, out of, from Boston, but originally I am from Sweden, where I grew up, went to high school and university, and then uh, did grad school in London. So, um, and I lived in, this is my 14th city, I think, and I've been living in six countries and four states here in the U.S., so I've had the opportunity to move around a lot, which has been great. That's fantastic. And have you moved a family around with you as well? Yep, every time. The first time I moved, I didn't have a family, but since then, we dragged the first my wife and then the kids along. And now the kids are in, in college, so they didn't have to make this move. Empty nesters. Yep, and enjoying it. <laughs> so where are they currently? So one is in Miami, Miami University, and the other one is at the American University in uh, Washington, D.C. That's fantastic. Either one of them want to follow in, in your footsteps of uh, accounting and finance? Maybe the younger one. We'll Interesting. see. We'll see. Well, that's pretty cool. So uh, take us back early on in your life uh, when you're growing up in Sweden or wherever it was at, the, at that particular time where you made the decision to make a career in accounting and finance? It was very clear, I think, from fairly early on in high school that I wanted to be in business, uh, which is a broad topic. And I always liked numbers and it was pretty good in math. So it's sort of starting. And then I studied um, finance and accounting at uh, university, both both an undergraduate and I have a, a master's degree from London School of Economics in international accounting and finance. So it was pretty clear that from an early stage. Now, then actually my career started very differently. I joined a company that I worked for during the summers, which was a student travel organization based in Sweden, but offices all across Europe. And they were sending junior high school kids mostly to most of them going to England to learn English. Anyway, so I worked there in the summer as in the different destinations in England. And then when I finished grad school in 91, um, it was a challenging work environment at that time. So I actually started working for that company, helping the, uh, the then president uh, to, in sort of growth ambitions we had. Uh, and that's how I started. So I was much more into sales, marketing, growth, um, and some sort of operational areas, not not at all involved in finance and accounting. Um, 
And then it just happened. So after three months in that job, this guy was my boss. He resigned and moved to the U.S. And he and I will touch points later. I will tell you about that later in discussion. And anyway, so the, the owner of the company told me, who was three months out of grad school and into the job, say, hey, you've been here now three months, so why don't you take over as the president of this division? And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And <laughs> there we go. So there I was, you know, a lot of focus on marketing, sales, growth, operational things, as I mentioned. And then we started uh, expanding into former, this was in 1991, so the uh, Soviet Union had collapsed. The Iron Curtain came down. So we expanded into the you know the new economies: Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, which then started to open up and um, set up offices there, as well as in Paris and Germany. So we quickly expanded, and it was a great experience to learn business from oh, inside absolutely. out. Oh, absolutely. So your degree, it says economics, accounting, and finance. That's uh, you know that's pretty broad. Is that is that intentional? Because when I, you know, when I typically, when I interview somebody with a, a U.S. education, it's accounting or it's finance only. Uh, this is very broad. Is that? Yeah, it, it's, well, while I was at LSE, it was a mixture of both. It was both finance and accounting, um, actually, when I think back with. And I'm not sure that's a European thing necessarily. You certainly can specialize even more in finance or even more in accounting. I was never really interested in the pure accounting part of it. So, for example, I don't have a CPA. I never worked in public accounting. That I was not interested in that. But I do know enough about how balance sheets and cash flows and income statement works and hang together. So I, I have a good grasp of that. But I was more interested maybe in the operational as well as financial piece of it. You know, I'm much more of an FP&A type of guy than I am an accountant, if right. you will. Right. But so what was that genesis? Was it you were, did you know what you wanted to do when you grew up or did you get into school and, and choose? Do you, and, and in Europe, do you have to choose immediately? Do you choose after two years like we do here? No, you choose. I mean, you even choose in high school. You can, you can specialize in, you know, science or economics or more broader social studies or engineering, even at a high school level. So you're much more focused early on. I mean, it, for example, if you're going to be a lawyer, you go straight to law school after high school. So it's a, there's a much, much shorter uh, avenue to get to the end point. I was pretty clear on, not 100% clear exactly what kind of job I wanted to have. When I was in London, I really wanted to get into investment banking, but the market tanked the year I graduated. So it was like, okay, nobody's hiring, so better figure something else out. And that's when I, this, this other opportunity came up. The one thing that I think early on, even way before high school, is like I really wanted to go overseas and I've always had this dream when I even from you know when I was really small like I want to go to America that's where the the future is really it took me when I was turned 30 I moved there for the first time so but I had this dream of moving and and to move to California particularly but you know it's easy to like California when you watch movies in Europe <laughs> all the surfer girls and everything right. like that right the weather you know everything <laughs> So the cars and all the rest of it. Yeah. It, how did your family feel about you moving to the U.S.? You know, I think they were twofold excited as as well as, so of course, it's a long way from home. But I, you know, my dad uh, run a travel agency. So we traveled a lot already from being not so far, mostly in Europe and, uh, you know, around there. But um but I, I think they realized, like, yeah, I just want to have an international career. I just love 
meeting different people, living in different cultures. And, and, and you know, I've been very lucky that that actually became the case at the end of the day. I mean, yeah, six countries is maybe not that much, but it's more than most. That's so. bold. That's very bold <laughs> to move into these different cultures right. and have to recreate your network every time. That's that's so bold and, and fascinating. Yeah, that that is the flip side of it, right? Because if you if I'd stayed in Sweden or maybe I stayed in, in somewhere in Europe for the rest of my life or for a long period of my life, you build networks. Like when you move, like we have a lot, right? It's that's the hardest part, right? You but that makes our family so much stronger too. And my wife and I are kidding. Like we have commitment issues, but not with, our, <laughs> with each other, but more to where to live. Every time we move, it's like after a few years, like okay, where should we go next? <laughs> It's so wanderlust. That's what you, you right. guys have. You have wanderlust. That I'm jealous. I, I I've lived in a few different places. I lived in Europe. I lived at just outside of Madrid. Um, but living in six different countries, that's fascinating. And to learn the cultures and really be embedded. That's where you really get to know right. the cultures. And I I find that that's uh, that's really neat. So how do you feel that the education prepared you for your career? And knowing what you know now, would you have done anything different? I tend to not regret things. But the one thing I wish I did more of was to learn languages. I mean, I used to be fluent in German. I lived there for a period of time after high school. I, I feel like I decent English, but I, I wish I learned French. I took that some in school and maybe some Italian. But um, that's the one thing I really wish I did. It's better when I was younger because it's so much easier to learn languages when you're younger. It's harder when you get older, particularly when we lived in Switzerland. Uh, but again, in you know most of Europe, English is so common and people want to speak English with you if they're not native speakers. No, I'm not a native speaker, but I, you know that's the language I can I can talk most in except Swedish. And, you know, for example, when we moved to Sweden for four years, my wife was, was American, but with French and British parents, she was trying to learn Swedish. But every time she opened her mouth, like, oh, you're from America. And then they started talking English to her. So it was like impossible to learn. And I said, don't waste your time. It's a language <laughs> spoken by 10 million people. And 90% of the Swedish people speak very good English anyway. So it was only my dad who didn't speak English. So they had, they had, they had fun conversations between two of them during the years for as long as he was alive. Right. Right. So you, you kind of touched on a little bit, but tell us about your first job in accounting and finance and, and what you what you learned. So um, let me think back here. So when so I joined that company in Sweden, as I mentioned, and after four years, my predecessor had moved to San Francisco, the company he started working for. They came to me and asked if I wanted to move to San Francisco and start working from there. It was a, also a language travel company, but for um, older students, sort of pre-college. And again, my dream then of wanting to move to the U.S. in general and California in particular, even though I was not 100% sure about the job, I was like, you know, I can't miss this opportunity because if things doesn't work out, I can always go home. So I took my, my stuff and I moved there in uh, 1995. It's a long time ago now, but anyway. And I started off more in operational, but also financial controls there. And that's kind of when I started to drifting back towards my education field. And then after about a year and a half, uh, the owners of that company decided to sell it. And I was then put in charge of building a financial model. Those days you'd go out five or six years and then starting to, and I built that and then, you know, doing the roadshow. This is, you know, a long time ago where you had data rooms of binders to do due diligence. Now everything is online. 
uh, were up in the air in the cloud and we had roadshows. you know investors came to meet us and we presented and um, so that that's really the turning point for me going into more, much more of a financial and at the end of the day the company was acquired by a at that time a publicly traded company out of Baltimore it's called Silver Learning Systems and I became a VP of finance for that division or that company then that they bought ultimately and that was really in the financial role. My educational background obviously was was helpful and suitable, but also my business experience, how to run a business. So I'm I'm always sort of my CFO role has always come from a business forward looking angle. Uh, but I do have a, a lot of respect and for accounting, and you know, I, every time I've gone. It's, it's about shortening the close cycle. When I came here, for example, that they closed the books on 15, 20 days, whatever. I said five days. We got to get there and we got to get there quickly because then we have 15 days to do other stuff. To get the books closed accurately and in a timely fashion, that's super important. But I, that's why I always hire really strong controllers to take care of that. Um, and I, So then I can use the data and think about the future. And if there's any area I like to be more hands-on in is the FBNA side of it. Were you ever overwhelmed? Because you, you took on so much responsibility, it seems like, early on, and then you're moving into a new culture. Were you ever overwhelmed? Oh, I'm sure I was at times, you know, and when there's a lot of deadlines and stuff. And there was a period of time, I remember, when we lived in Switzerland and we are going to move to Hong Kong. And I had to go to Australia for 10 days, come back to Switzerland for two days and then jump on the plane to go to India for like three, four days and then came back. And then two days later, we moved to, to Hong Kong. So the fact that my wife didn't kill me is still a miracle. And then you land in Hong Kong and I was still doing my old job as was my new job. So there was a period of time there where it was extremely stressful and it was hard to, <laughs> to get any sleep because, you know, when you have a company that's based in the U.S. and you're in a time zone that's 12 hours ahead, that means that every night you're on a conference call. And then after that, you're so fired up, so you can't go to sleep. So that that was probably the worst time in my life in was 2008, where it was <laughs> it was challenging both work wise, and then having two small kids in a new country. And and you know, my God bless my wife, she was an angel. And and then she's always find job after, you know, three, four, five, six months wherever we landed. She's she's phenomenal in that sense. How did you cope with all that stress? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what I try to do sometimes when I really stress, I write stuff down. This is what I have to do. And I write stuff down to what I've done. And I, that's what I try to coach people sometimes when they're really stressed is at the end of the day, you know, think about what you actually accomplished because it's a lot more than you think. You, you, you tend to think about the stuff you haven't done, but don't forget the stuff you've done. And then write down what you need to do the next morning and try to be very, very structured. And, and, and also you have to be disciplined and be really good in prioritization. I had a boss once who, even though he was a, a kind of a, a terrible person, but he had one saying that I never forget. So I always know your number one priority. Always know your number one priority. And, you know, as much as I can, I try to follow that because it's a good advice. Like there's only one thing that's most important right now. Let's get that done. That's great advice. I What I do for myself is I focus on um, what I, what I already have and be grateful for that in that moment right. and just be like, look, I can accomplish all of this 
just by relaxing and being thankful for what I have and being thankful for the fact that I'm even in the situation to be stressed because a lot of people maybe don't have that opportunity. So I turned it into an opportunity as opposed to um, as opposed to a tremendous amount of stress because you can you can let it overwhelm you and and then you wake up at two in the morning you're trying to solve problems and you don't sleep and then it just turns into a right. bad cycle. And I do think even though I'm not following my own advice all the time, but you know, eat right, exercise, and, and especially what I learned living here now, especially in the summer, you have to drink a ton of water. <laughs> That's um, a fact. And and uh, just you know take care of yourself. Yeah, um, I think that's helped too. But that everyone has their own way how to deal with stress, right? But I, I like to, if I can write stuff down, I, at least I don't forget it because I, I it was a period of time too, right? But I kept a notepad on my nightstand because I woke up in the middle of the night. If I wrote down, then I could it was easy to go back to sleep because at least I, next day I will see what I, what I needed to do. Good idea. So tell us about your first experience managing people and, and what you wish you knew before you started managing people. Yeah, that was probably the flip side of when I got that promotion so early on as I was, you know, a young person in in an immature manager. And so I, you know, I probably was not the best listener and managing by example was probably the only thing I could do. And then the owner of the company was a very um, smart, innovative entrepreneur, but not a good manager. So I didn't have, <laughs> didn't really have a good role model either. So learning by doing so if there's anything that I wish I could have done differently, maybe would have been to get some better training, how to manage people early on. Um, and, you know, it takes time to get that. And I think now I'm, I'm a, obviously with 30 plus years experience, I'm a very different manager now than I was when I started. Uh, I was probably very hard and set high expectations and had zero tolerance for mistakes, uh, which is not a good recipe. You know, everyone makes mistakes, myself included, and you get a lot of people to do that. Now, if somebody starts making the same mistake over and over, you might have a different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that was probably, I was, I was not ready for that from a managerial perspective. I had all the drive in the world and we got stuff done, but I think there was some, left some scars on people. Mm -hmm. Did you have to interview for your, for any of these roles or were, were you more appointed? Um, most of the time in my career, I have been appointed, but there's been a couple of jobs. This one we have right now, for example, they went through a very rigorous interview process with first the recruiter that found me and then with the management team and, um, they follow a, a process, something called GH Smart, which is very detailed and very deep dive. And they took, I think they talked to six or seven references. So it's a very thorough process. Uh, but yeah, that was certainly a, 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 a very thorough interview process. Same thing when I joined Manpower Group years ago. They also went through an interview process with management and, and their HR team. Other than that, most of my jobs have been sort of appointed or career moves within the corporation. I was. Why do you think you were appointed? What what was it about you that made you the one as opposed to going outside and hiring somebody else or hiring a peer? Well, I think at the beginning, um, you know, people look at what you do and how you do things and how you work and what you accomplish. And, you know, especially when you're in the 
high growth company that I was um, with Sylvan then that acquired that company I was working for in San Francisco. They were shifting their focus to going to international higher education and they needed people to support that. And uh, the, the, so the, the other side of that story or part of that story is the company they acquired, what I became the VP of finance for, after only about a year, it wasn't doing so well. Uh, they decided to sell it and they said, they said to me, so you got to go sell it again. And I said, okay, I'll sell, sell the same company twice. I wish I had more equity though, but, uh, but anyway. So, and then they said, but we really, we're starting this new, new division and we like you to join it. And I think they just, you know, like any people you have around you that work for you, there are people that stick out and, you know, they just, they, they get it. They're harder workers, they're get stuff done, et cetera, et cetera. They have potential and so forth. So I think it's just, you know, you, you, I mean, sports people say, or golfers say, for example, like, you're only good as your last shot. And it's like, you're only good as your last job. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now, today's society is more focused, especially since the pandemic, on work-life balance. Oh, yeah. In Sweden, growing up, was there work-life balance? Was that a topic? <sighs> I wouldn't say so, even though Sweden probably... Um, especially on equality between men and women, they were early on there. I, and I think the whole Scandinavia and then Europe was much more equal between men and women, I think, early on. But it's sort of work-life balance. I said my dad, you know, when he started out, he was a journalist and then he started his travel business. So he was writing newspaper articles at night and then running his business during the day. So I think I, I grew up with sort of, you know, you have to get stuff done and you have to work hard. And my, my mother was a teacher in math and history and uh, was equivalent of junior high and but also did other stuff and worked in the business on the side so i think if i had any not necessarily scars from there but what i learned from an early age was like you got to work hard to to get anywhere in the world and obviously this was you know I, i'm born 1965 so i grew up in the 70s and 80s if you will and um i i if there was work-life balance in sweden i wouldn't have known it <laughs> I wonder if that's disappearing in today's society, the, the hard work and the belief that it does take hard work, because there's so much that that the younger generation and I have younger kids than you that. And, and I, I teach mine hard work, I make them work and do chores and, and things along those lines. But there's this perception of easy money. And you look on the Internet and there's all these people that are taunt flaunting how much money they make and, and how easy it was and stuff like that. So I wonder if there's a cultural shift to away from that hard work mentality that this, this country and many countries were built on. I wonder if that's going away. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't think so because at the end of the day, you know, some of these, you know, fast earners were creating quick wealth shortly like influencers that, you know, I personally have a hard time really understanding what, what value are they adding, but hey, the market decides, right? So who am I to judge? Um, but I think the underlying is that you have to work hard. And I, I always think about, you know, business people or sports people or, you know, musicians, you know, did was Tiger Woods a talented golfer? For sure. Did he work the hardest? Probably. And so, and I think, you know, staying on the golf team, hey, Rory McIlroy, is he, is he a talented golfer? Yeah, sure. I actually know somebody who grew up with him. And yeah, he was talented, but he works like crazy, right? 
is Keith Richards a good guitarist? Yeah. Did he have some talent? Sure. But he worked really, really, really hard. I read his book, Life, and that was the one thing that blew me away, how hard he worked to learn how to play guitar in different ways. And so I think, yeah, you can win the lottery, but most people do. They spoil away the money very quickly anyway. Um, and you can you can create some short-term, I think, income by being an influencer, but is that a sustainable um, way to earn money? I, I always think that, you know, if you work hard enough, but you got to work smart too. I think that's the biggest difference today, right? Back in back in the early days when, you know, long before internet, you know, you spend a lot more time getting stuff done because you didn't have the tools that we have today. And I do think work-life balance is important, right? Because you have to have, and I think you can have both. You can have success, work hard. And of course, you look like people who really create wealth in a short time, like Jeff Bezos or you know, Elon Musk or, or Bill Gates, you know, but they are, they don't have a work-life balance or they create whatever balance they want, right? but they are, I think they're obsessed with work, right? They, they're just, they're wired that way. And I've seen some people like that, that maybe haven't created that much, as much wealth as though those guys, but certainly a lot. And they're just, they're just consumed with work and that's who they are. But I think it's different when you're leading an organization as opposed to you being, you know, three, four, five levels down, right? If you expect people to work that much, well, if you pay them, great. Um, but I, th- I, 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 yeah, I think, I think it's more important today. And I remember when I came to the U.S. the first time, it was a little bit like, you know, the person who spends the most hours in the office is the best, and that's not necessarily true, right? It's, it's a, the person that's actually using their and other time most effectively is or the best, right? And I actually had a conversation with my CEO. Well, and I said, actually, your main job or your main responsibility is to make sure that we use the resources we have effectively and efficiently. And because in our line of business, and I'm sure it's in yours, right, it's all about people. You know, we buy computers and we have an office, but that's our balance sheet is our people and our branding. Yeah, that's that's the wealth of an organization is in its people. Right. Yeah. I kind of say to non-financial people, like, every night the balance sheet walks home and you pray that I come back the next day. (laughs) You, you brought up a great point, which is the FaceTime in the office isn't as important as it used to be. And what also is fascinating, you said that, you know, you had rooms full of data in, in the 80s and 90s where you had to go in and find all this information. Now all this information is at our fingertips and our efficiency to do the same amount of work has gone through the roof. We can right. get now more work done because of the efficiencies of data that is much more easily accessible and when i would write a i I joke with my kids that you know they're doing homework and they're asking chat gpt what the answer to their biology question is where i had to open a book or go to the library and find the book right then open the book and then go to the index and then so it's just amazing what we have and i think that's an area which is exciting and interesting but also concerning because when it comes to education which i'm a big fan of is are you studying to pass the exam or are you studying to learn? That's fact. You know, chat GTP is, is an issue in the academic world, particularly higher education, because, you know, I, I, I think that's 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 a, a big concern because it's great to get good test scores, but if you haven't learned anything, then... Mm-hmm. One thing about that, you mentioned that Keith Richards is an excellent guitarist, but he worked really hard. If you ask him if that was work, 
do you think his answer would be, yeah, it's work? Or is it what he's passionate about, what he's doing? He loves it. Right. So I joke that I love talking to people. I love interviewing people. I love making the connection between a company and a candidate. We match the culture. We match the comp. And that candidate goes in. And then six months down the road, I call them and they're like, I love it here. Thank you so much for this. Right. That that right there to me is not work. So anything that I do, really, I would consider probably managing to KPIs when somebody's not hitting their numbers and they're doing the same thing over and over again. That to me is work. But calling people and and talking with people and making the connections to me, that's not work. So I, I joke that maybe I work two hours a week. The rest of the time is doing what I'm passionate about. And if you're passionate about something, it does not feel like work. No, of course, he was super passionate about, you know, music and guitaring. And, you know, and we all know how successful he and Jagger has been right over the years. So, of course, it's passion. And I think that's important to bring into your work, too, right? If you're miserable every day, you're in the wrong place. Right. You know, I have days when, you know, you're you're not too happy and that's fine, right? We're all people. But I think you have to have an underlying passion for what you do, the industry you've chosen. And I'm so grateful I chose an industry or happened to stumble in more or less industry of education in different shapes and forms, right? Because we are, you know, we're truly changing lives through education. And I believe that's, it's so important wherever you are, um, that if you can educate people to the highest possible level, um, then, you know, the world has a chance to be in a better place. That's something you can really sink your teeth into right. for a career. That's yeah. and that's that's very honorable. I wonder if you can teach kids passion or if it's innate in the individual. That's a good question. I I yeah, I think you can at least sort of point people in direction or help them understand what they're doing is valuable and it has a meaning. But of course you have to develop a passion from the inside too. I think it comes from your inside. I mean, why do people choose to play different sport, for example? Well, but it could be all kinds of reasons. My uncle played soccer, so I'm going to do that too. And then, but, or whatever. But I think, you know, and the same with business. And, and it, sometimes it's a little bit, in my case, did I choose? Did I think about, I'm going to go into the education field? No, I never even thought about that. But it sort of came. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. And either you, you really become passionate about it or the, or then you move on to do something else or you want to try something else. Like I tried different industries, which I've been happy to do too, right? But I, I, I do know that education is, you know, it has a lot of meaning. And and the other thing too, which great with education, nothing is recession-proof, but it's, education is pretty close. I, I worked through, you know, 2009, for example, company I worked for in the education field was owned by KKR. We were the best performing asset in 2009 because education just, it just, you know, people need education. Absolutely. So you, you didn't actually interview for leadership titles until a little bit later in your career, but what, what advice would you give to someone interviewing for their very first leadership position? I think, you know, especially with my own experience, I think it's important to demonstrate that you can lead and motivate people uh, because being a, a lone wolf is not that hard, right? You just bury your head down and you do work. But if you're going to lead people, you have to get them to follow you or at least, you know, in, in sort of in the order of sense of direction. And 
and get them to be productive, efficient, and all the rest of the stuff. So create so to be able to create a positive team environment, I think is is very important for a leader. Because you know, as a leader, you're not necessarily gonna well, you're not gonna do people's job because either either you're gonna do it and you don't need them or they're not capable of doing what you hired them to do, so then you need to find somebody else. So I think it's about, it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm happy to roll up my sleeves whenever I need to, right? But for me to do a job that could be done by somebody at a lower cost, it's, 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 I have to make sure that that person works out, right? It's all about economics at the end of the day. Uh, but I certainly have rolled up my sleeve plenty of times uh, when I had to. But I, I do think getting people to follow is, is probably, and, and have a positive impact on their, you know, contribution to the company. How do you motivate people? When I interview people, there's a couple of things I always say. I am not a micromanager. I people who work for me need to be self-motivated, self-driven, and I am happy to help you solve your problems. But when you come to me with a problem, I also want you to come at least have thought through some possible ways to solve it. And then if I can't help you, I'll help you find the person who can help you. Every problem has been solved. It's just a matter of finding who solved it or every challenge. Um, but I do want people to feel like they are, I'm there to support and guide them. But I want them to find their own inner drive, right, to, to get stuff done. And then when it comes to the other thing I always say to people too, I, I don't want any surprises. If you made a mistake or something bad happened, Come to me right away. I would never hold you, hold that against you. But if you are trying to hide something, because eventually it will pop up. My dad taught me that early on. He said, tell the truth right up because it will always come out. Anyway, just a matter of time. So I want people to feel comfortable that they can make mistakes. That's not a problem. I, I make them all the time. Uh, but bring you out early. Or if there's any major problem, right, uh, that come. And, I, and, then, and then, I, then I can help, right? If it don't come up early, then maybe it's too late. Maybe the problem just becomes bigger. So why do people follow you? Oh, I don't know. I should ask them. <laughs> well, I think, no, I think I am very transparent. I'm very direct. It's, you know, what you see is what you get. I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. I mean, I know these are a couple of expressions that you can read in, in books and stuff like that. But I, I truly believe that I am, I'm not hard to read, and I'm, I'm very direct in all directions to to board board members to seniority CEOs I will speak my mind now not being untactful but I I I feel like you know why shouldn't I and I think that earns a lot of respect and um and I think you you asked before why do I get picked for certain roles I think there's there's always been a high level of trust like Ingmar is is going to tell us what the real story is. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's not going to hide anything. He's going to tell us what it is. And I got that feedback many, many times. Like, so I think that's part of it, right? They know what they get when they hired me or when they promoted me. When you go into a new company, obviously they think they know what they get and hopefully they, 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 they get what they think they want to get. But um, when I moved on in previous companies, they've known the commodity, right? The, I think the most, I mean, to me, the most important thing that you said is trust. Right. Trust is the basis of every relationship. If that trust is not there, and how do you gain trust? You gain trust by telling the truth. Right. You screw up, you own it right away, 
That's that's how you gain trust. Right. Uh, you come to your people, and and I always believe that everything rolls up, and 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 so I'm at the at the helm of the ship. If something goes wrong, it's my fault. I yeah, because I should have seen this coming, or I should have prepared the individual better. Uh, so I I own that, and I think that's why a lot of people have have they follow me is because they as well they can trust me they know that i'm going to be honest with them so for me what you said that key thing there's trust yeah that's that's so important so you told me a little bit about what you're looking for when you when you're interviewing somebody you look for somebody that's self-motivated um somebody that's going to be honest with you are there any specific questions that you ask to draw that out well i'm you know you're trying to ask people for concrete examples you know for example if you made a big mistake how did you handle that who did you go to and and how was the outcome of that conversation right if you um had a really big challenge and you didn't didn't know how to solve it how did you approach that what did you do who did you talk to you know, what was your analysis? And, and trying to get people to talk about concrete examples that they've done in previous jobs that can respond to the question. Because, you know, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's, there's a lot of good training too, right? Into your training on the other side. So you got to try to cut through that. And I mean, you're a professional recruiter, so you know this better than I do. But I, I do think that I was trying to find some real good examples of that they can demonstrate that this is what I did. Um, and then, of course, you know, reference checking is so important and and to really verify that, you know, that they've done what they what they said. And and I think it's important to reference check, you know, people who they worked for as well as people who work for them. Uh, so you gotta understand how this pe- person is because some people are really good mas- managing upwards, but not really good managing downwards. That's fact. So along lines of what you're saying as far as coming up with examples of challenges, what I recommend to people is they print out their resume. Uh, I'm still a paper person. They print out their resume. And then for each job that's on their resume, they think of a challenge that they had to over. Well, first of all, they think of something that they're really proud of that they accomplished. And then what kind of challenges did they have to overcome to achieve that? Right. And so when they do that, they've gone back and they've thought in their history and they've thought about all this before they go into the interview. So now it's all loaded up into their brain. It's fresh in their mind and they can right. talk about it very succinctly. The, uh, the worst thing you want to do in an interview is somebody asks you a question and you go, oh, that's a good question. And then you sit there and all you're doing at that point is you are delaying, you are trying to come up with an answer and you're trying to fill the void of silence with, with your mouth, right. which is never a good thing. So you want to make sure that you're fully prepared. Yeah, it's funny you said that because I remember reading somewhere is when, when people are answering a question with that, oh, that's a really good question. They're only buying time. Right. They don't have the answer. <laughs> right. They're just trying to buy time. Exactly. So, um, and I think also, you know, when people talk about, you know, whether it's been part of a success or created a success, it's really what did you do, right? Because sometimes people are just lucky, right? They roll into a company and, you know, things are just going, but they didn't actually do that much. And that's hard to to get out of uh, the interview process, but really trying to understand what the individual did to contribute to whatever the success was. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's good. 
So if you could go back to the beginning, is there anything that, that you would have done differently? Well, no, as I said, I, I well, learning French was one. Um, I, I, you know, I had a friend of mine ask, you know, well, what do you think if you hadn't taken that first job? And I, well, I did. And I don't know what the, def- I, you know, I can't relive my life. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with what I've accomplished in having this opportunity to live in so many different cultures. Is, is, and that suits my personality. It doesn't, doesn't work for everyone. I have good friends who live in the same time the whole life and nothing wrong with that. That's just not for me. As far as, I mean, I have a master's degree. Should I have gone for a PhD? I, I don't think so. I think I was, you know, I, I, I do think advice to people is get the highest level of degree that you possibly can. Uh, because, you know, an education, especially a higher education degree, can never be taken away from you. You can lose your driver's license. You can be disbarred as a lawyer. You can lose your medical license, but you can't lose your degree. That will be with you for the rest of your life, unless you cheated when you got it. But And that's important, right? Education, and there's, there's economic uh, correlation between education and income potential. It's not a guarantee, but income potential. Well, your passion about education is yeah. <laughs> to the core. I want to ask you this question because you shared this with me prior to us getting on the podcast, but you you said you were, when you graduated in 91, there were no investment banking jobs. That's what you wanted to do. And my question to you would be, well, how do you think things would have turned out differently had you gone into investment banking? But to you, that's not a question that's important. What I think you would say is, is, Things happen, and I don't have any regrets. Right. I know family members, friends that hold regrets their entire life, and it wears on them. It drags them down. It takes uh, it takes energy out of their mind that they could be focusing on something more positive in their life. Where does that come from, and, and how do you – do you know where that originated? Because that's so important for somebody to learn. I mean, I think that's, you know, we're all different and, you know, people, it's not that I am super <laughs> positive all the time. Right? I certainly have moments where I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, productive where I'm, th- you know, I have not negative thoughts necessarily, but just not, you know, I'm not happy where I am, but you're human. Yeah, exactly. I, I think nature versus nurture, right? How much of that is the nature, I mean, the DNA of your 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 mind and your body, and how much of that is influenced by by the environment that you grew up in, right? And and you have if you had a lot of negative influences, how much will that impact your own sort of psychic going forward, and vice versa? If you have a lot of positive influences, how much that impact? I I I try as hard as I can to be more on the positive side. It doesn't mean that I'm always there for sure, but I I, I don't know. That's a that's probably a question for more of the people to understand the, the brain more than I do. But I do think that the environment you grew up in, I think, probably impacts you more than you would think. But then, you know, you go from high school and then you move to another environment, which is college, and then maybe another environment. So you get influences all the time. It's hard to say, but I certainly grew up young in an environment where, you know, working hard was was a, was an important thing. My dad's big. Well, I thought it was a joke for me, but it was probably that serious. He said, he asked me once, what is more important? Or what's better, Friday afternoon or Friday morning? And before I answered, he said, Friday afternoon, because it's closer to Monday morning. And if you're really lucky, you get to work the weekend too. <laughs> Gee, I wonder where your hard work so mentality like, okay, comes from. I got from. it. <laughs> um, 
That's that's funny. So do you think there's anything in your career that, and I, I think the answer to this is no, just knowing you more now, is there anything that you feel hindered you in your progression in, in your career? I can't think. I mean, I'm sure there is. And it's interesting now as I reach more of a respectable age. I mean, I'm always up until this job, I think, actually maybe the second to last, been the youngest person on the management team. And, and now suddenly I find myself the, the oldest. But that's nothing to do with really hindering. I, I, you know, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, I've been a very much an opportunity seeker. So when these different opportunities has come to me like, okay, Ingmar, we're going to send you to Switzerland. I thought, oh, great. Yeah, that'd be fun. And then, oh, now we would send to Hong Kong. Okay, great. I'll try that. You know, you know, I always have this sort of mentality like, if it doesn't work out, I can go back to wherever I came from. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't think of anything that's hindered, but I'm sure there's been something. I had a feeling you were going to say that. And I think it goes along the lines of something, along the lines of the passion that you have. I want to ask you a question because I was in the same boat when I bought my firm, Integrated Management. I was the youngest person by almost 10 years of all the people that I was managing. And I was self-conscious about that. How do you deal with always being the youngest manager? Were you ever self-conscious about it? And what did you do to, to change that? Well, I, certainly in the early years when I was really young, obviously, I, you know, I didn't, and as I mentioned before, I didn't really have a good mentor. So, you know, I was trying to, manage people. It was hard sometimes too when, you know, I was 25 and I was trying to tell somebody who was 48 to, you know, what they needed to do, right? But I guess I just you just had to sort of try to focus on the task at hand and what needs to get done for the company in sort of I'm half your age or whatever, but I I'm still your boss, so you know, you got to respect that both ways and 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 I think um you know, as I grown older, obviously I I haven't been so much younger than anybody else anymore and now I'm well, I'm the oldest. Uh, it happens. Team. It happens. It happens quick, right? And you just—it's life. The the imposter syndrome, I think, is is what a lot of people feel. And I didn't feel imposter syndrome. I just didn't know how to manage somebody that was 20 years older than me. I just I just didn't have a clue. I thought, okay, here's I'm going to run out front and I'm going to show everybody what to do, and they're all going to follow me. And then I look back and I'm like, where where is everybody? Right. And learning how to motivate people, I found out that you had to actually get to know that person and what made them tick and what was important to them to then be able to motivate them. Right. You can't just, you, assume, you can't assume you know what motivates them. You have to actually ask them what motivates them. And that was a strange concept to me that I learned in probably 2011. Servant leadership is what I call that, where I've actually learned what what are you looking for and let me help you get there as opposed to here's what I think you need to do. Right. That was a big moment for me. So I don't know. Did you have any specific people that taught you leadership? Did you read a book? How did you ultimately figure that out? Yeah, I, I, I have to admit, I've not been much of a business book reader. I read it. I read a few, you know, the, 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 the usual ones. But I've had a couple of really good bosses and particularly one that I worked uh, a long time with in, in Switzerland who I, you know, he was very sharp, very human and super hard worker. And he's just a good communicator and, you know, much better than I am. 
but I, I was trying to learn from him and he, I used to have <laughs> a bit of a temper um, and he did not, right? So he was very calm and, uh, you know, I had to really push buttons to get him to, to speak up, so to speak, or, or, or get a, get the high voice in. But, you know, there's been a couple of people that I really have learned from in sort of the people management side. And then I worked for some people who has been some of the smartest people I ever met or I, I, I ever met. And, but they were terrible manager. They were just real hard noses and, you know, using language that I couldn't repeat here uh, frequently. And, but you kind of learn from them too, because they were so smart and they had such a drive and, but they could have been a little bit more human in their execution. Um, and I, you know, I'm, Certainly not the best there. I felt that right away, but I, I I I matured a lot over the years. I can tell you that. I mean, now I have a lot of people to tell me I would have left this company if you weren't here and stuff like that, and that makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah. You want to know that that you're impacting people's lives in a right. positive way, and they actually want to hang out with you. Right. I don't. I'm still trying to figure out, and and the reason I dig so much into the leadership aspect is. If you're going to progress and go to your title, you have to learn how to become a good leader or yeah. you're just going to have constant churn in your organization right. and that's going to cause everybody problems. So I'm trying to figure out is leadership innate? Is leadership that you have to learn? Is it something that you have to learn? I'm still trying to dig that out and figure out what is the genesis of leadership. I think there are some people that are natural born leaders, uh, visionaries. I am not one of those. And I, I know where my limitations are. So I had to learn how to be a good leader. So yeah. I'm always trying to figure that out. I, I, I definitely think there's, there's, there's some people who are natural leadership talent, just stuff like I have a natural talent for anything else. But it doesn't mean that if you don't have that as much, you can't become a leader. I mean, you know, there's a lot of leaders in any organization, regardless of size, right? So I think there's, there's a way to learn it. And there's different ways to learn. Some people learn by reading leadership books and they get inspirations or ideas or things that they can implement through that or others are learning from watching what other leaders are doing or, or getting that or go to leadership training for that matter, right? There's plenty of that out there, right? But but you have to want to be a leader too, right? It has to come from the, from, from the inside. Uh, whether you have a lot or not so much talent for it, it it matters, but not as much as you think. I think if you really become a leader, you can, you can become a leader, if you want it. Yeah, but you gotta, you have to want it too. No, hundred percent, because it is work. Right. Oh yeah, it's it's definitely work, right? And and you deal dealing with people is some of the hardest things, right? Because it's work problems, it's private problems, it's all you know. You have to, you know, you're dealing with human beings, mm -hmm. and um, with all the good and the bad comes with that. So, what is there anything that you would go back and tell your younger self? Well, other than the language, uh, learning more languages, I think maybe if I've had uh, had <laughs> had toned it down in certain situations, but also I had so much passion and I wanted perfection so badly, right? So it's like, yeah, I I was so driven and wanted the best for the company all the time, but. Maybe I, you know, I was probably run over some people in the process and I can't change that now. And I, I, I know I matured a lot and, and over the years, uh, at least that's the feedback I get, especially from my wife. Um, but, but, <laughs> that's, but I, that's I think some of the best, that's, that's like looking in the mirror right there. But you know that's what? You got to learn through best. mistakes too, right? Nobody, 
it just is a natural leader and it just progresses. I mean, there's, there, everyone has, you have to make mistakes to learn from it. Uh, I think it's super important. And, uh, you know, I, I made my fair share of those and, and hopefully I learned something from it. But I think it's important to try and, you know, decision-making is something that always comes very natural to me. I'll make decisions as quickly as I can. And I, if I have good information, great. If I don't, I still make a decision. Or occasionally I will tell a person, I'm not ready to make the decision right now because I need to find out X, Y, and C. But again, I'm very direct about that. I'm not sort of trying to hide that, you know, I can't make a decision because I don't know everything. I'll tell that to people like, no, you can't get a decision right now because I need to find this out. But at the same time, I, I love execution and just move forward, move forward. We'll learn from mistakes. And unless they're completely fatal, it's okay. That's fantastic. Too many people are afraid to make a decision because they're worried about making that mistake and right. looking bad. Uh, but taking ownership of it and learning from it, that's, I think that's the whole, per you know, you tell your kids, don't do this, don't this, and do this, do that. And what do they do? They do it anyways. Right. And you, and then you just have to accept that because that's really, truly the only way that you're going to learn. Right. Yeah, I believe it's that. leaders who can't make decisions or take too much time and information. They will either work themselves out of that job or they will take the organization down with them. Mm -hmm. So envision right now you're, you're, you're talking to somebody that's starting out early on in their career. They want to achieve a CFO title. They already know that. You have the opportunity to kind of give them, you know, a roadmap and, and some advice. You've given a lot of that through this podcast, but let's kind of summarize that of what you would tell this individual um, that wants to become a CFO eventually. Get an education as high as you can. Find an industry that you either are or can or think you could be really passionate about. And then, you know, I'd say it, right? But work hard, but also work smart. Um, be strategic in, in your thinking. And then try to find one or a couple of mentors. I think that's the one thing I could have really benefited from when I was young. It's like have somebody I can talk to who's not my boss or somebody outside, right? If you can find a, a mentor that can help you and you should probably have a couple because it's not necessarily that that one is right about everything, right? So if you can have a couple that you can talk to, I think that's tremendously helpful, especially when you're young. Even when you're, you know, advancing your career, there's still, you don't know everything. I certainly don't. And sometimes it's good to talk to people who either have done what I'm doing or have an understanding of what I'm doing and you just seek advice. So I think, I think that is... That is probably one area I, I, I wish I had when I was younger, for sure. A really good mentor or a couple of them. That is some of the most amazing advice and so succinct. And if somebody could listen to that and, and implement that in their careers, that's so important. Right. So if you can believe it, our time is up. It's been almost an hour. That's how much right. how much time flies when you're <laughs> passionate about what you're talking about yeah. and, and you're having a good time. And, and your passion is a gift any company that that was able to get that passion, harness that passion, you were a gift to all those organizations. So it's been great to listen to you and, and learn about what drives you. So I really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Chad. It's been it's my pleasure being here. I really enjoyed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So if there's some individuals that are listening to this and they have additional questions or they, they wanted to ping you on something, how would you suggest they get in touch with you? Uh, please uh, reach out via LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest and quickest way. Okay. And I'll give a hint. If they go to your LinkedIn, at the very top of your LinkedIn is a picture of a golf course. And so probably uh, <laughs> a quick way to start a 
a conversation with you is maybe to bring up golf, huh? That, that I can talk golf a lot. <laughs> I learned you have you have one more hole in one than I do. I only have one. I got two, but you know what? It's it's all luck, though, right? It's skill to get it close, <laughs> but that little extra interest there—that's all luck. <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, uh, you can anybody can get a hold of me. Just Google Chad Dean Integrated Management. I pop up number one. If I don't, I got to get a hold of Google, Google, and talk to them a little bit about it. But uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn as a recruiter. I, for better or worse, live on LinkedIn. And so you can reach me pretty much there anytime. So that's it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Financial Footsteps. Thank you very much, Ingmar, for your time and look forward to talking with you more. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Financial Footsteps, Candid Conversations with Financial Leaders. We encourage you to apply the knowledge and wisdom shared in these conversations to your own career. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Your feedback is important to us as we continue to bring you more candid conversations and thought-provoking insights from successful financial leaders.